look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Faisal, there was a really cool story, um, really interesting story, it came out of Florida. Uh, medical case, right? Why don't you set it up for us, and then we're going to have Dr. George uh, uh, sort of address the medical, legal, and maybe even ethical concerns of this whole story. Okay, so let me set the context the best as I can here. So 70-year-old patient yep. arrived at the emergency room in Florida, um, had high blood pressure, a high, sorry, a high blood alcohol level, had some other problems and so forth, and on his um, chest, across his chest, it had the words, do not resuscitate, and the word not was underlined, and then he signed it. No, tattooed. you got to say it. it was oh, tattooed. tattooed. Sorry, yeah, it was chest. tattooed yeah. on his body. Right. Do not resuscitate, and his signature underneath it in a tattoo. Yeah, or the initials, right? So, initialed. Yeah. It's initialed underneath that. So, the question is that. So, the, this, this medical team in Florida initially decided to ignore the tattoo and begin trying to revive him. And then they went and figured out what's the ethical perspective behind this. So yep. this is where we are here today, right. trying to say, okay, does it work? Can can how do, how does the medical field in Calgary or in Alberta do? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question and one that we're not capable of uh, of addressing, but we can ask the question to somebody capable of addressing it. And we've got Dr. George back with us today. Dr. George, welcome to the show. Good morning. Glad to be here. It's an excellent conversation to be having. So let's talk about this. What is a so let's set the tone though because okay. Dr. George is a intensive care unit physician. So this is right, right in his alley. Like he knows this process. Uh, it's not as opposed to asking some other doctor who doesn't know what the heck's going on in well, the sure. merge. But this this is the guy who knows it. Well, so let's start there, Dr. George. Have you ever seen anything like that? First of all, uh, no, not to that extreme. But it, it, you know, maybe I'll make a few you know opening comments. I mean, I think this occurring in the states probably isn't. A coincidence. They certainly have a much more adversarial and more litigious relationship between doctor uh, and uh, and patient. So right. I think that's important uh, to mention. And then a couple of other important things. Um, it's the graying of our population. So this is a really important conversation. It actually ties in very nicely to what you guys do. This is a conversation that is difficult to talk about, and people ignore it. Meaning, what are your wishes if some life-threatening condition happened and you were incapacitated and you couldn't make a decision for yourself because that's what happened in this guy. And this guy took an extraordinary measure to make sure that everybody that was taking care of him knew what his wishes were. So I would propose to you that what he did, although over the top, is an unbelievable effort to make sure people respected his wishes. Um, so Let me just I think jump that's in there, George. Thing to say. Yeah, let me just jump in there, George. Um, th this is where I'm. I, I kind of want to understand the process. So let's say, God forbid, I end up in the emerge, and uh, it's it's you know you you have a choice of reviving me or not um, based upon my wishes. How do you know what my wishes are? How do you? What's the process that you go through to say, yeah, we have to, or no, he has a, a do not resuscitate or DNR uh, on his profile. How do you guys know that stuff? No, good question. So by default, if none of those wishes are known whether a living will on the medical record or you've discussed it with somebody that you trust and love then if somebody comes in with 
a reversible condition. Uh, nurse docs and ICU docs and most docs would do everything possible to try to save your life. So the first step is, do you have a conversation with your family, your um, your lawyer, uh, your your family doc, so that people know what your wishes are, so that when you rock up to the emergency department and everything is now electronic, so most people who enter the healthcare system have a medical record, it doesn't take very long for us to look you up by name, unless you're unidentified, but most people know your ID, and it will be in your electronic medical record what your goals of care are, what your preferences are. So they exist. There's a footprint, an electronic footprint of that discussion happening. And if it has never happened, then the default is do everything possible within reason, which we'll talk about in a moment. So in order for so most people will go to their lawyer and draw up their estate documents, which includes a will, a power of attorney, and a personal care directive. That personal care directive that gets drawn up doesn't necessarily end up on your system at the emergency, correct? No. no it, it has doesn't. to go through the family doctor. Yeah, there yeah, it has to be somehow input. I mean those those living wills that you're talking about are a very good start. They outline what you're willing and not willing to do except they end up being very vague they it often has language like you know i do not want to be in a persistent vegetative state if there is no chance of me survival i don't want to live on machines forever well we never get you to that point what we're talking about is that golden hour you come in and there is something life-threatening are we putting you on life support are we doing cpr are we doing everything possible to save your life and this usually applies to people who, of course, are older and who have a lot of chronic medical conditions. And I'll probably swing back to the case in Florida. What they didn't say, but it's kind of in the subtext, is this uh, gentleman, despite him having alcohol on board, probably had a lot of serious uh, comorbidities. You know, they suggested that he had bad emphysema. So he might have been on home oxygen and he might have had other medical conditions. So there are a lot of people who live in their 70s and 80s who have terminal conditions, meaning, you know, you can treat them, but you can't cure them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what this discussion is about. So, you know, it's um, okay. Yeah. So let's take that a little bit yeah. further. So from your experience, uh, do you find that family physicians are having these types of conversations proactively, or does it come from the patient first? Uh, they're not happening enough. And, and if anything comes out of this discussion and the people that listen to your radio station, they come to you for advice on your personal health, your wealth health. Uh, and they go to their family docs and there's a reluctance to talk about end of life care because it's some sort of taboo and it shouldn't be. Uh, you should be having this conversation. Both family docs should be initiating it. People like me should be initiated. And for sure, the patient who runs his own health care should tell people what they want. And my advice to everybody, and this is the big take-home message, do, you, do people who you love and trust know what your wishes are and what you're willing to tolerate or not tolerate at end of life, wherever that is, whether that's a 60-year-old or a 90-year-old? And have you spoken to them lately? Because if nobody knows what you want, the default position will be do everything possible. And in most instances, that's not the right thing to do, especially if you're frail and elderly. And just a couple of interesting things. The baby boomers turned 65 five years ago. So 
the cohort of baby boomers, which include our, our, our parents' generation, the first ones are now into this healthcare system five years ago. They all started turning 65. So the youngest ones are now 65. So we have this gigantic influx of this graying population into the healthcare system that he, you know, ties up a huge amount of resource. And people, I think, believe, and you counsel them, that they're going to live a long time and they run out of money and you see all this stuff in the media about, you know, old people staying in the workforce and not leaving it because now people are living longer. Well, with, with that comes this fallacy that somehow the healthcare system can, you know, make them live longer even though they run out of resources both financially and physically. Well said. Well, yeah, and I think I think that's the takeaway. Period. They have those conversations, right? If it's not with your family doctor, it shouldn't it certainly be with the people that are around you that will likely be there yeah. at the time that those decisions are being made. George, we're going to have to leave it there. I appreciate it. All right. Okay, we've been joined uh, joined by Doctor George. He's an intensive care unit physician addressing this very real issue of end of life quality of care and what your wishes and how they're going to be executed. Um, you know. When you get to that particular stage, as he said, you don't know when, but at some point you get there. On that particular note, let's uh, remind everybody about our upcoming seminar because the health bucket is an important piece of the conversation. Yeah, the resources to help you for the future is going to be discussed on Tuesday, January 23rd, 7 p.m. at the Crowfoot Co-op Wine and Spirits. Now you need to preserve your seats. So give us a call, 966-8400-966-8400, or go to our website at morethanmoneyradio.com. All right, stick around after the break. We're going to try to tie all this up. Make sure that uh, we continue the discussion about the investment strategies to put in place to support all of those four buckets in retirement. You're on 770 CHQR and more than money. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.